Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with Gene Lee, who is the president and CEO at the Minority Corporate Counsel Association, an organization committed to advancing the hiring, retention, and promotion of diverse lawyers in law departments and law firms by providing research, best practices, professional development and training, and pipeline initiatives. Prior to her time leading MCCA, Jean was a vice president and assistant general counsel at J.P. Morgan Chase, a senior litigation associate at Millburg LLP, and a law clerk to federal magistrate judge John Hughes in the District of New Jersey. She's a graduate of NYU, Go Violets, from which she also holds a master's in social work, and Rutgers Law, Go Scarlet Knights. So excited to have you. Thanks for being here, Jean. Thank you for having me, Jonah. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Look, I just want to make sure we leave lots of time to talk about the great work that MCCA is doing. But before that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your path to the law. And especially you're the first guest I've had who also has a social work degree. So I'm really curious sort of how those things built up in your career and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll start from kind of the beginning. As a first generation, really as a child immigrant, um, I came to the United States when I was eight years old. And it was, wow, that was like 42 years ago. Mm. And there were some Asian Americans in Philadelphia where my parents um, were settled, but not many. And, you know, one of the earliest childhood memories, of course, is not being able to speak English. We, I learned how to recite the ABCs at almost age nine. It was two months before my ninth birthday when I arrived to the United States. And you start noticing the differences that you had compared to your classmates that you experienced because you don't speak English or you can't read and write English. And of mm. course, even as a child at eight, you see these differences and you start to wonder about the world around you. And and I won't go into all of them. I've discussed some of them in my remarks at various um, events. But fast forward, one of the reasons why I decided to attend social work school for my master's was that at that point in my life, I had just graduated from NYU. I really thought about law as a profession having had a lot of um, challenges with the law because my parents didn't speak English. You know, they had experienced so much fraud and all these sorts of things as small business owners. And I really struggled whether or not that was the first place I wanted to be. But I also wanted to understand people. I wanted to understand society. I wanted to understand how people treated different people in society, how people interacted with one another. And that's really one of the main reasons why I went to social work school. And it was a terrific experience for so many reasons. One, you learn to understand about systems, you understand people, Mm -hmm. society, and the psychology. And then within that context, um, I did my master's for two years and worked professionally as a licensed social worker, a therapist for about three and a half years or so before I went into law school. And the reason why I transitioned from social work to law is that I realized that social workers, at least at that time, 25 years ago, were great at solving individual challenges. And in some cases, um, not in the social work I did, but in some cases, they solved society's problems. 
But what I wanted to do was to have more impact. And I realized that at that point, I worked at the Legal Aid Society Juvenile Rights Division, and I realized that lawyers and legislators had an, an ability to change systems and change the, the society and the impact of those systems on people whom we were trying to help, which is one of the reasons why I was inspired to go to law school. But of course, then um, I could not find a job in the uh, nonprofit sector oh. because back in those days, it was also right after 9-11. If you didn't have experience in the private sector, the nonprofit sector wouldn't take you, which is why ultimately after um, clerking, I decided to go into the private sector. So that's kind of my long journey. Yeah. Well, no, and it's one that I think is really important for people, especially sort of law students, if you're listening to here, that the idea of systems is so important. The idea of law as a profession of potential for social change is important. And I couldn't agree with you more. And we could do better in law schools teaching it and we're working on it and we're going to keep working on it. Um, but also that the job you want may not be there right away and you need to go do something else. And you've seemingly done a lot of something else. I love learning. I mean, even now at age 50, I love learning. I, I was just talking to my nieces who are um, 13 and 15 about it. I was somebody who absolutely enjoyed school because I, I had an opportunity to learn from people who were scholars, who were doing things at a really at a high level. So that was the one thing that I would say is common from childhood all the way through the various roles I've mm. had, whether it was clerking or working for a boutique firm. I will say that when I was coming out of law school, if you asked me if I would ever work for the private sector, whether it was on the plaintiff side at Milberg or, you know, for a large bank like JP Morgan Chase, I would say no way. There's hmm. no way you will ever find me in those places. Um, that was before I went into law school. And clerking was something that I was always interested in because I again I wanted to understand our judicial system and where better to learn than to be in a courthouse and have the good fortune of working for a really fantastic um, federal magistrate judge back then. So for me, there was always a tremendous aspect of learning. And there were also so many amazing teachers. First, it was my judge that I clerked for, Judge Hughes. He was fantastic. He's now retired. And then from there, you know, I went to plaintiff sir, and I will tell you, because I was not focused on the private sector, I didn't really realize there was a difference between a plaintiff's firm and a defense firm. Someone that I knew also had said, you know, I know you're really focused on helping the community and uh, giving back to the community. I know this is not the perfect way, but have you thought about the plaintiff side? Because this is the type of work they do, but you'll get great experience, which is one of the reasons why I decided to go into a law firm focused on litigation. I thought, what better way to learn about trial work potentially that I was interested in doing sure. than to become a litigator. So that's how that happened. And then from there, as I realized that, um, and there were many challenges there, both great experiences and some that were really tough. I've always worked in places where there was just a lot going on. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I was just drawn to them, but, but certainly all positive for the most part. But there were moments where, oh, geez, I don't want to learn this lesson. <laughs> right, right. It's never fun to learn lessons the hard way. And, and just the exactly. quantity of work that young lawyers are, are thrown upon them. You're asked to do your best work, but not given sufficient time to do it. It's a huge challenge. Yeah. I mean, I think back in those days, 
I'll never forget the several instances where, because there was so much work, I mean, you had a car drive you home after 24, pulling 24 mm. hours. They waited outside while you took a shower and changed your clothes to go right back to the office. I do not miss those days. Right, right, right. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why I really, as I was um, entering my late 30s, I really wanted a little bit more balance. Everyone said, there's no way you're going to get an in-house job from a plaintiff's firm. That's just not going to happen. And I'm I'm a believer in beating the odds sometimes huh. and trying your best. And lo and behold, um, I was incredibly fortunate to have met my then manager, Nick Tonelli, who's no longer here, but he he saw something in me and um, was able to uh, land a role at JP Morgan, practice there for several years. And this was one of the things that I had considered, you know, maybe down the road, but not at the time that it happened. But it was an opportunity to give voice to those who have been invisible. When you talk about DEI, at least even back then, Asian Americans were really not part of that conversation. So for me, it was very important to be part of that conversation. And when this opportunity came along, it was on the board as a volunteer board member. I love the organization, but I knew it was going to be a lot of work. I wasn't sure if I was ready, but I thought it's a great opportunity once again to do something I'm incredibly passionate about. And I think those are the things that really are important to me. Am I going to learn? How much am I going to learn? And how much of a difference can I make? And this was a terrific opportunity in both those fronts where I felt like I can give back hmm. and also receive in terms of learning. That's amazing. And you know, the other thing that I want to highlight, and you said it, but I want to make sure people truly hear it, is that you had to put yourself out there and try things that were against the odds. And it's painful to hear that you didn't get a job. But if you never put yourself out there, you're never going to have that opportunity. I think too often I hear of people say, well, I'm not qualified, right? They want 20 years of experience and I have 19 and a half. It's like, let them tell you that. Uh, it's, not, it's not worth it. And I think that's really amazing. And you, you took me straight to MCCA where you are now. Uh, tell me a little bit more about what the organization is and the role that you see it sort of playing in the legal community. I think of MCCA as a thought leader in everything and anything that really deals with diversity, equity, and inclusion in our profession. It started as a thought leader founded by Lloyd M. Johnson, who was an incredible visionary, and my predecessors, uh, Vita Richardson and Joe West, who've really done an amazing job to grow the organization and the platform. And my job is really to continue all the amazing work that the three predecessors have started. I think Today, it is more important than ever before, and I, I can't think of anything else in the legal profession that really has embraced all of the things that this organization has since its founding 25 mm -hmm. years ago, focused on really looking at the systems and how we can interrupt and disrupt those systems to improve diversity. And back then, it was diversity, then it was diversity and inclusion, and now it's diversity, equity, and inclusion, really based on data, research, data, and programs to educate people. And it is the same thing we are doing today, except at a much you know, bigger scale, because we've now grown the organization with the support of many of our members who believe in this organization, who believe in the mission of this organization, many of our board members who have contributed to this organization 
so in addition to my you know, three predecessors who really built a strong foundation, the leaders uh, on our board, as well as our members, have contributed to making this organization the leading organization in everything that's DEI focused. I can't think of another organization that does as much research as we do that's not an academic organization. Sure, sure. And the data that we've collected and leveraging that data to either create best practices and or provide that extra knowledge for people to implement their own best practices. We would not be here today without all of those people. And I think today we can enjoy that position of leadership for all of the things that people are continuing, our leaders are continuing to do and the work that we are doing every single day to improve our workplace, whether it's a law firm, corporation, in some cases, um, nonprofits, and we've shared even our best practices with government as well. Wow. Yeah. That's that term, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI is something that we're all experiencing and should all be experiencing. Can you talk to me about the how you see those three terms and sort of the differences between the goals? I mean, they're all related, but I think they all have different meanings. And and I'd just be curious about your thoughts about sort of the differences maybe between diversity, equity, and inclusion. Sure. I mean, diversity is quantitative. You're talking about different people, different genders, different races, different ethnicities, sexual orientation. MCCA takes a very broad definition of uh, diversity. We include veterans, lawyers with disability. So it's, it's beyond race and gender, which has historically been the case, I would say, probably like 40 years ago, not even, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even as recently as 30 years ago. And that's what we embrace as diversity, um, all of the, the various groups. And inclusion is really much more, in many ways, subjective. It's not as tangible because it's not quantitative. Diversity, you can see, sometimes um, you can, if it's an invisible diversity or if it's sexual orientation or military status, I mean, you have to self-disclose. But some of that diversity, gender diversity, racial and ethnic diversity, may be a little bit more obvious. Inclusion is not, I mean, none of the inclusion is really obvious, right? What may be inclusive for you within a workplace may not be for me and vice versa. So we benchmark that in partnership with Russell Reynolds Associates to really understand what are the behaviors that create a culture of inclusion? Are there kind of set um, of behaviors that will create a culture of inclusion where people feel like they belong in the organization, where their voices are included in the organization? So that's what really inclusion is about. Your place, your seat at the table and being seen and feeling like you belong. So that's inclusion. And equity is about, do people have equal access to opportunities? Are they equitable? And are the systems set up and established in a way that will benefit everyone across the board? Or does it disproportionately benefit one or disproportionately disadvantage another? So equity is really about equal playing field or leveling the playing field for some and really trying to break down those barriers One way in which um, I look at equity is, you know, when you have, um, and there's a a really good graphic that a lot of people share on social media about three children who are at a baseball game. Equity is really about 
tearing down that wall so that you don't have to accommodate each child that may have, whether a different height, whether it's a disability, whatever it is, but you're breaking down the actual system that prevents every child from being able to enjoy a baseball game Mm. that they were attending. Um, And there are so many other examples, but that's just one that I know a lot of people are familiar with, which is why I'm sharing. Um, That's a great way to just think about equity. Um, Another one I think is an example of a tree and how it bends towards one way or the other, but that's what I think of equity. Do people have equal access to the opportunities that are presented within within the workplace? Um, And if not, what are the barriers Hmm. and can we tear down those barriers to make it equitable? Yeah, that's super helpful because I think sometimes they kind of get lumped together and that makes sense, Yeah, right? I think that's important. I think they have connections as you beautifully explained, but at the same time, knowing knowing the slightly different pieces of the goal, I think help us to figure out what solutions we're looking for. You know, one of the things that your organization does, as you said, is is provide real data, right? People often like to say, you know, show me the numbers, show me the business case, and you do that. And I guess, you know, knowledge is power. What kind of data are, are you providing, creating? What have been some of the the studies that you think that have really had an impact on on the community? There are so many. I, I often get um, feedback from lawyers from the LGBTQ community about uh, our lavender law research. We did, I want to say it was like 15 years ago wow. at this point, how much of an impact that had. Because 15 years ago, you know, people weren't talking about those issues within the workplace, those issues that impact lawyers from, you know, LGBTQ plus community. And that research is often cited by many members of that community as one. And most recently, just fast forwarding, again, there are so many others. Um, It's not to say those aren't important, but just to fast forward to today, we've collected um, 18, 19 years of law firm diversity data. We started leveraging that data, well, 18 years last year, and we started analyzing the diversity metrics, as well as the impact of diversity programs within law firms um, last year in our uh, law firm diversity scorecard. So that is something that we are really excited about because it is the first time where we will create a benchmark, a standard on where law firms should be with their DEI data. Because I think that's the one thing, one of the many things I should say When we talk about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's the one area where people do not feel comfortable having a standard or a requirement in some way. And a lot of people are struggling to put their arms around, well, what should be the benchmark? Where should the basic minimum sort of standard be? And that's one way in which we are trying to provide guidelines, a benchmark, a standard, a standard, not the standard, sure. in which you can measure yourself. And the scorecard does that. It looks at multiple years of data that law firms have submitted. We look at various um, promotion, recruiting, retention activities, and we are looking at whether or not what you're doing in a law firm really is creating that improvement that you're hoping to achieve, whether it's diversity, retention, or of course, in, in the promotion category. Hmm. Um, so that's something that we're really proud of. That's something that we're continuing to do. And again, you know, we could not have achieved that without the leadership of our board who spoke up um, together in unison about the importance of data as well as creating a standard. 
The same goes for all of the other general counsels who supported us um, as the inaugural signatories to that benchmarking data and the importance of embracing data in a smart way, in a, in a way that is beyond the surface level, you know, looking at multiple years, multiple mm-hmm. different activities, and not just a snapshot. Sure. And, you know, you, I'm sure, work with law firm partners and in-house counsel all the time. You know, how did they use that data? Is that to encourage internal change? Is that to encourage external change? Is it to respond to what sometimes I hear the term thrown around in academia of the anecdata that people have um, that's often not very good? How are people using the data to actually create the change? We wanted law firms to use the data to better understand what activities have had an impact in their Mm. DEI efforts. So internal change, absolutely systemic change. Uh, We're starting with the law firms because that's where a lot of our data has been collected over the last, you know, 18, now 19th year. And, you know, again, without the partnership and the engagement of all these committed law firms in trying to create transparency, that's something that we're really excited about. You know, a lot of clients say, oh, these law firms have to do better. Well, they are doing well because they're the first to provide data, whereas a lot of clients have been a little bit more reluctant to provide data. Firms have been fantastic in doing that. We're now giving them the tools to use that data that they submitted over the last several years or, or even more than a decade to better understand where their strengths are so they can keep, you know, um, bolstering their strength where they may have some areas of improvement so that they can improve. So that's really for the law firms. We have engaged the clients to help them be more in tune because a lot of clients have said DEI is important to us because we're looking at how we are engaging our vendors in this space. Well, now you have data to Hmm. better understand if you really care and truly want to see some change. Well, here are the law firms that are doing great. Do you want to reward them? So when you have a new RFP, when you have a new opportunity to engage a law firm, and there are five law firms with the same set of skills, except for DEI, here's your opportunity to reward those firms that have done great work in talent management, because that's really, at the end of the day, what DEI is about, right? And a lot of clients are starting to pay attention to those because of what's happened in the last several years. And also, frankly, what's happening on the external side with regulators and states demanding that there be, you know, diversity on their boards, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, So we're hoping for internal change in that way and externally an opportunity to look at this much more holistically between a client and one of its law firms. Hmm. And do you see this work sort of being tied up at all with, or at least the expansion of this work being tied up at all with the national conversation that we're increasingly having about race and diversity, equity, and inclusion everywhere. Thinking back to last summer and sort of what's come out of that, uh, we're finishing up right at the end of Black History Month, and we've seen a lot of sort of corporate, or I've seen a lot of corporate statements of support. Do you think that conversation is being tied in with this sort of more business case discussion? I mean, I think it needs to be. Anytime hmm. you talk about uh, DEI, there has to be a race component. When you ask yourself, why do people ask for more diversity? Because when they sit in the room, they don't see enough women, they don't see enough people of color or diverse people in general. Uh, So one of the things that we're hoping that companies will do more of is to think about how to leverage this data to improve DEI, whether it's with their vendors or internally, 
thinking about DEI and race within their own companies? And what are the ways in which you can really improve DEI? It can't be, what we're trying to do is DEI cannot be looked at in a vacuum. It has to be a multifaceted approach to addressing some of the challenges that we have noticed forever. This is not an issue that just came up recently. Right, exactly. It has reached that crescendo recently, as you noted, but this has been an issue since I can remember. Sure. And hopefully with more data, you are educated. And the more you know, the more you can do. And the more you can do, hopefully, the more you can change and lead that change. Our goal is really to educate so you can, not everyone has to do something about it. But a lot of people have said, like, I don't really know where or how we should change. Well, we have taken that challenge to say, all right, we're going to help you know better. We have data. We're going to provide analysis of the data, the insights to the data, and how you can apply the insight into application within your business, whether it's a law firm or a corporation. And it's really up to you. If once you know, you can do. And if you don't want to do, then we, I mean, the, the help stops right there. Like we right. can't, we can't force people to do, right? So that's what we're really trying to accomplish is systemic change. Uh, and in order for that to happen, I think the conversation needs to be a lot deeper than a business case or a feel good or a moral case. It mm. has to be holistic and it has to be outcome driven. What are the outcomes you're hoping to achieve and why? Yeah, I was, that was actually going to be my follow-up is sort of like, what are the highest sort of maybe leverage is the wrong word, but highest value things specifically in the law firm context that the best firms are doing and the firms that are not doing so well are not doing? Are there specific sort of, are there any commonalities across the data set? Yeah, I mean, there are a few things. Um, one, I mean, there's a war for talent. The great resignation is real. I mean, you saw the number of women that the profession and and really the workforce in sure. this country had lost, you know, in terms of women. I think some articles I, I remember seeing last year were saying that we are back to like 30, 40, even 50 years ago. We wow. lost yep. that many women in the mm -hmm. workforce. And so you don't really need to be thinking, I mean, that, that, that there isn't a war for talent. I mean, if you're not, if you're thinking that there isn't a, a war for talent, you're probably really not tuned in right. to what's happening. Right. So the things that law firms are doing that I think personally um, that shows up in the data as well as in in probably in their own culture mm -hmm. is that leadership and every single person um, you know ports to leadership are completely aligned. That mm. this is important. They're not making a statement that it's important. They're showing up. So words and actions match. And it matches with resources and reinforced once again with commitment beyond the CEO of the law firm, the firm chair of the law firm saying it. It goes all the way down to everyone on the firm administration, the partnership. They're singing the same song at the same time. Hmm. And that's the big change that I see. Where it's not successful, you have one DEI professional Maybe, and I, I didn't realize this, but law firms are really good at saying half somebody. They don't have a full-time somebody. They have a half of a paralegal. I have a half of an admin to supporting me. And it's a firm with 500 plus people. And they also have a very limited budget. 
and they're only focused on programs. The law firms that are really moving the needle have a strategy, not a program list of programs that they're calling it a strategy, but a real strategy hmm. with KPI. They look at this as a business imperative. They work with their practice group leaders to, to really think about how can DEI strategy be embedded into your practice group? So they're not just looking at it in an isolated incident, but they're looking as a business imperative hmm. in that sense. So it's not, okay, how many programs are we doing in 2022 is our strategy. It's, okay, how are we getting the partners to buy into the DEI strategy to increase you know, representation at all levels within the firm? Those are the commonalities that I see of law firms that are doing great work. So even if their numbers at a snapshot aren't great, they are really making a difference and their numbers will eventually improve because lawyers nowadays actually care about firm culture. They ask about that all mm-hmm. the time. I'm sure you you probably hear that way more than I do dealing with students. I definitely hear it from my students. And, and one of the things that I think is really important that you just said is sort of, it's easy to put things on your website. It's easy to sort of respond by quantity or by giving by rearranging titles, right? I think that's something we've seen a lot of. And look, there's a challenge. I mean, there's definitely, I've heard about this, I've read about it, I've seen it in my own institutions, right? We need more DEI professionals because more people want to hire them and that's great. But seeing where firms really put their money and their values is really important. And it's not the first time I've heard that. I Last year, I spoke to some pro bono counsel and they said, if you want to know if a firm is committed to pro bono, ask how much money they give to they give to their pro bono initiatives, right? And you can't see this because we're on a podcast, but Gene just sort of <laughs> gestured that that's right. Like you put your money where your mouth is. And I hear that loud and clear and I hope others do as well. The follow-up to that, of course, is how do they really figure out who has this as part of their DNA and who's doing it because they feel like they have to do it? Because I do hear that from my students all the time particularly as my student population gets more diverse. And they say, you know, I want to go to a place that really values me and values what I bring that's unique. How do I ask that question in an interview? Any suggestions for those students? Yeah, ask them who is on the DEI committee, who sponsors it, who attends. And if you only see that it is just the associate, of, well, not just, sorry. <laughs> um, if it is only staff and associates, support staff and associates, and there is not a single partner involved, except as the executive sponsor, the one executive sponsor, that's probably not a good sign. I probably would not think that there is real commitment if I was a student. Mm-hmm. But if the firm chair is personally involved, attends meetings, you know, not every meeting, but once in a while to check in, and the firm committee of DEI members, committee members, are as diverse as the firm would like to see. So that means that there are straight white men. Mm-hmm. There are white women. There are uh, women of color. There is LGBTQ. Hopefully the there are folks that are identifying, self-identifying, of course, that you can't force. And then, of course, disability is another area where you can't force identification if it's an invisible disability. Sure. But you're seeing a diverse population in that committee. I would also ask in the same way, not only about the DEI committee, um, I would ask about associate recruiting. And if you're only seeing kind of one token representative and you're not seeing them in other areas, ask them why. Ask them. You have a right to know. And if they don't have a clear answer, 
you can then decide. You can walk with your feet. You don't have to be at a firm that you don't feel as though they will embrace who you are and allow you to add value. Hmm. Now, that may be easier said than done in some cases. Sure. But another way is our law firm database has been updated. Law students can see basic demographic data. So look at who is an equity partner. Look at who is on the executive committee if you don't feel comfortable asking. Mm -hmm. Not the executive committee, sorry. So just general de demographic data, I should say, uh, in terms of partnership and associate recruiting. But you can ask those questions. Who is on the associate review committee? Is it a diverse group? If it's not, you might want to ask, like, how does one get on that committee? You can't be penalized for just wanting to to learn about the firm, and, and it should give you a good idea about the firm culture. I've said this to many of my mentees. You can ask respectfully. You don't have to be disrespectful, but it gives you some sense of how people are thinking about these issues and trying to address them. Hmm. Right. Full personal disclosure, right? I am a heterosexual white male uh, who is committed to this work, though. I guess my other question is, how do those of us who do not identify as members of, you know, historically underrepresented communities in the law or diverse individuals, how do we play a role in making this better? What, what are the things that, that you would expect? You know, I think it was great that you explained that having the diversity committee be only diverse individuals, right? It needs to show the diversity, the full diversity of the law firm. What are things that, that those of us who, who have that demographic can do more in our communities, our professional communities? I think, you know, speaking up about the importance of DEI and ensuring that you can be an advocate. Hmm. Um, so I think of advocates one step further than allies. An advocate is somebody, when you're not in the room, it's kind of like a sponsor. You are advocating not for your diverse friend or, you know, an individual, but just in general. Hmm. What are the systems that perpetually disadvantage women and diverse um, population of lawyers? So when people talk about um, flexible work arrangements and things like that, because let's say a lawyer has a disability, are you advocating for that greater change? Because usually in most of these law firms, I think the last time I checked, something around 70 some percent are straight white men mm -hmm. and then 20 some percent are white women. So the majority, I mean, like literally nine out of 10 you're talking are the majority. Sure. When you can think about those systems that can disadvantage, you know, women and people of color, lawyers of color, that's when you can really make some big changes and be a voice because you don't have a skin in the game, as one would say, mm -hmm. in improving the culture. But in reality, I always say this to partners at big firms, you do. It's your partnership. You've invested in it. You made a capital investment. Why wouldn't you want to protect the assets of your law firm by being proactive, by thinking ahead and creating that culture so that you are not in any way discriminating unbeknownst to you or your partner is doing or somebody else discriminating against a population or a group or an individual. Mm -hmm. So being proactive, educating yourself, advocating for change on a systems level are the things that I think, um, you know, folks like you can do to really make a difference in the workplace. I mean, sure. there are many things, but those are the couple of things that I would really advocate that those with a voice and a seat at the table truly think about what are the systems that perpetually challenge them. 
Mm. Um, and some are obvious if we really want to learn about those issues. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it connects back to when I asked you to sort of define equity and inclusion, it comes back to you don't necessarily have to be um, from a traditionally diverse background in order to help build equity in your organization. You don't have to necessarily be from that background to encourage inclusion and welcoming in our communities professionally. Um, and I think that's really, really helpful. Look, I, I am curious about what you do every day as a CEO <laughs> of a very important and growing organization um, and maybe how your legal training sort of comes into play in you know your day-to-day -day life. So what is, what is a day in the life of Jean Lee look like? It's different every single day. Makes sense. That's what I've heard from nonprofit uh, leaders. That doesn't surprise yeah, me. I, there, there isn't, I, I can't, I mean, I, I love my job. Uh, somebody once asked me that you love what you do, don't you? And I'm like, yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> why, do you, why do you say that? Uh -huh. I mean, I, I do love what I do. Uh, and you can only do this if you love what you do. I think every day is different. I learned something about myself. I learned something about people. So that makes it really, um, for me, the most enjoyable part. And of course, working with our members, working with our board, and believing in the mission of this organization mm. um, to create that opportunity. And as you said, advocating for that change. Um, we're leveraging the platform of this organization to advocate for change so that more people have access to equity that they have not historically had. What is the life in the day of me? Um, I mean, it just ranges one day. It could be about, you know, discussing brand strategy. Another is about board recruiting. Sometimes it could be a little bit of a crisis management um, because something's happening in the news. And we, you know, like George Floyd, for example, mm -hmm. um, two years ago, there was a lot going on in the news for a lot of people. Sure. And do we respond to that? We were one of the first organizations, thanks to the leadership of our board, um, really taking that step forward to make a statement about the murder of George Floyd. That was important. That was a little bit of, um, I wouldn't say, a, you know, but there was a sense of urgency mm -hmm. that we, we do not sometimes always have. Um, so that's the one thing that I do love about my job is that we create opportunities and voices for those who do not. What else is there? I, I mean, I love getting up every day because we're making a difference. Uh, one lawyer at a time, whether it is through some of our programs, um, doing our research and data, I love the fact that we are sitting here trying to solve very complicated problems. We do not have all the answers. Mm -hmm. We will likely never have all the answers, but the idea of problem solving is something that I absolutely enjoyed. I enjoyed as a social worker, I enjoyed as a lawyer, and I certainly bring that to this job every single day. That's one of the reasons why we created the scorecard. We thought about, okay, everyone talks about DEI and law firms and law firms are having a challenge in improving DEI. What can we do that we currently haven't done to help them address that? And, and we brainstorm and we address that problem with the scorecard. Hmm. Um, so those are some things that I have used as a you know trained lawyer to address some of the difficult challenges that we see in the workplace to help organizations become much more aware of their own data and ways to leverage that data with workshops, trainings, um, and more educational um, programs that we offer. Yeah. What's so impressive about the work you do is that it's not just 
programs and and trainings. It's it's programs and trainings that come out of data. And I think that gives it so much power. And you may not hear it, but what I hear is that you're leveraging all of those skills from all of those jobs that we talked about earlier on in our conversation. And it strikes me that, I, I don't know, I, I'd be curious, do you think you could do as good a job as what you're doing now without having had all of those various ex experiences earlier in your career? Yeah, I mean, absolutely not. Because you need to understand people. You need to understand research. As a social worker, I did research about people. As a lawyer, you're constantly trying to problem solve. I mean, I was a litigator. So you're trying to look at the chessboard and figure out, okay, if I make <laughs> this move as a litigator, what's going to happen from the other side? So you're looking at different facets of the problem and trying to figure out what is the best solution and what's the best path forward. All of that training has helped me to be much more successful in this role. And also some crisis management. You know, when I was in-house, a lot of it was not really legal, but crisis management. Reputational harm was something that we cared deeply about. Sure. And most companies cared about that even more so than any sort of legal harm that you could probably mitigate in a settlement or some discussion with hmm. opposing counsel. But reputational harm, once it's done, you lose your customer base. So in that same way, that thinking has helped me to better understand what does it mean to have a certain brand? What do we want MCCA's brand to be? Hmm. All of those things I would not have been able to do without my prior training as a lawyer. And last but not least, the analysis of data to predict behavior, to better understand outcome, that's all from my days as a litigator, as a in-house lawyer at JP Morgan. I mean, we looked at so much data. Mm -hmm. It's no secret, 10 years ago, if you were reading the news, there were a lot of issues with every single major bank in this country. Sure. I mean, every single bank, right? It was right after the mortgage crisis, the CDO um, blowups of the uh, 2007 and 8. And, you know, we looked at a lot of data to better understand our customer base. And how do we take that data to then say, okay, we're going to do X or Y or Z. I mean, mm -hmm. that's exactly what we did with the scorecard. We have hundreds of thousands of data sets and data points. What do we do with that? How do we analyze it? How do we come up with a framework to analyzing that data? And what are we looking for in terms of outcome from that framework? I mean, that's all my training as a, mm -hmm. as a lawyer. And I don't think we would have done that. That's a pretty good pitch for anybody uh, thinking about <laughs> law school, even if they're not sure they want to you know, yeah. be a traditional lawyer uh, in, in air quotes. Look, we're getting to the end of our time, Gene, and I always like to end these conversations by asking for some advice. So what do you wish sort of you could have known uh, when you graduated law school or early on in your career that you know now that you'd, you'd want to share to sort of the people who are, are entering our profession? The one thing, take risks. I've hmm. always said, uh, I know lawyers are risk averse, take more calculated risks. Early in your career, you'll learn more that way. I know that is so difficult for you know lawyers because taking calculated risks is something that we don't really do right. as Right, it's much. why we became lawyers in some <laughs> cases, right? Right, exactly. Uh, take calculated risks. Um, failure is a great way to learn. Don't be discouraged. Learning how to pick yourself up, I know that sounds kind of cliche, but that is something I've done so many times in my career even before law school, as a social worker, that is the best way to learn, especially early in your career. Don't be discouraged, but finding solutions and understanding problems holistically 
all of those things will come with some of the failures you're going to experience. And if you haven't experienced a failure, that means you're not pushing yourself. Mm. You have to be uncomfortable. You have to push yourself if you're interested in growing from where you are today to something more. Um, so taking calculated risks, I think, is one thing I wish I have, would have done more. Mm. That's amazing. So Gene, if people want to learn more about you or MCCA's work, how can they, how can they find out more? Oh, sure www.mcca.com. <laughs> great. Wonderful. Well, look, Gene, it's been Thank great you. chatting with you and um, I'm really inspired by the work that MCCA does. And uh, hopefully we can uh, check in again in the future and talk about some of some more of the successes that you and your organization have had. So thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And it was a pleasure speaking with you, Jonah. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.